on the third episode of my podcast, I had on Larry Strother, who wrote my co-wrote my favorite episode of television, Another Day in the Life from Night Court. And every time I brought up a joke or something that was in the show, he said, oh, that was Gary's, or that was probably Gary's. And today, we're being joined by the Gary he's talking about. Not only did he write for Night Court, but he wrote for The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson, My Sister Sam, Caroline in the City, God, the Devil, and Bob, Malcolm in the Middle, and others. And he's here today. I'd like to introduce Gary Murphy. Gary, welcome. Thank you. So I always start off with the first question. It, approximately when and where were you, were you born? Because some people uh, don't like yeah, to give some people don't like to give the I year. Approximately San Francisco. Okay. Yeah. And the early fifties? You know. Around yeah. There. Roughly mid. Yeah. Okay. No, I just, okay. So did you have a TV grow? Do you remember always having a television in your house? Yes. Okay. And what comedy shows did you watch? Well, how long do we have? I loved I loved comedy from the beginning. Okay. Um, everything in my my parents they had varying ta- different tastes, but they enjoyed comedy as well. My dad loved Jackie. Anything with Jackie Gleason in it, so we used to watch his variety show my mom loved Lucy and I would watch that with her and uh, it was just part Red Skelton I mean from my earliest memories it was in our living room and okay. we would watch as if my grandparents would come over we'd watch like Red Skelton as a family or, or uh, Jack Benny who I one of my absolute idols Jack Benny um, uh, just his radio I highly recommend anybody listening to this his radio shows hold up as does his uh, television show and uh really remarkable and uh, then you know on from there and then dick van dyke of course carl renner just passed away and uh just the best just the best i I saw him interviewed where he said one of the uh, thrill for him was to have writers over many decades tell him the reason i'm writing is because of the dick van dyke show and that isn't 100 percent the case for me but i would say it's a good a good part of it the that, idea of that we're living in that world and that, uh, as he quoted somebody else saying to him, oh, you could, you could like, make a living as a comedy writer and have a home life and a family, and hey, I might want to do that. That's the show that gets named most uh, by the people that I've talked to. Dick yeah, Van, I'll bet. Yeah, Dick Van Dyke, and then Sergeant Bilko is second. Oh, my dad loved uh, Phil Silvers. I forgot about that spectacular in that role and yeah. uh, I watched tons of Bilko absolutely and uh, the Honeymooners you know yes I mentioned yeah okay and where did you go to college St. Mary's College in uh, Moraga California in the East Bay okay and where was your what was your major history oh okay any particular type of history American uh... American history Oh, okay. Yeah. That that's my yeah. my bachelor's as well. Um, oh yeah, yeah. So your first job was the Marv Griffin show in show business. Well, it depends what you want to call my first paying gig trying to write comedy was in the band I was in with Larry. We started uh, my older brother at St. Mary's started 
a band called Butch Wax and the Glass Packs, and we were like, Shanana, we kind of recovered mm-hmm. early rock and roll songs and started playing high schools in Frats, Berkeley. And, uh, and then we started playing clubs, and they owned you for three 45 minutes at night. So we thought we were funny, and so we started doing sketches, and they were terrible at first, and people would just scream at us, <laughs> just do the songs. And we felt, hey, you want to hear the songs? you got to watch the sketch. Mm. Um, and it took us a very long time to actually be funny on stage, not just inside jokes. And Larry then joined the band after I was in it for two years. That's where I met Larry. Okay. And uh, so I began there trying to write uh, jokes for my for this sketch comedy group that we it was a, and we did very well. Uh, you know, intermittently, let's say, but we opened for Pointer Sisters, Boss Gags, oh, um, Ike and Tina Turner, and uh, you know anybody you could think of who was playing music in the seventies. Passed through San Francisco, and and then we played some good clubs and bad clubs along the way. But uh, anyway, that's where I first started trying to write comedy. Okay. And then uh, and then Larry got a job at the Murph Griffin Show. I moved down and spent a weekend with Larry, and I thought I should work up the courage to move to LA. Could I do this? Could I actually move to LA and write comedy for a living? Try to do that. So. It took me a while to work up the courage. Uh, and then uh, I moved to L.A. and Larry got me a job. Which he got a promotion. He got me a job as a runner, PA, uh, on the Merv Griffin show. Okay, and how long were you there? I was there three years, and it was very, you know, so, so it changed my comedy writing life. I guess I mentioned to people before in describing it that I didn't even know what I didn't know. There, there were no classes, it's, for the most part, in colleges you could take and there's no internet and so I mean I had no idea how to begin trying to fashion a career writing comedy and uh, I had no idea of story structure and I would try to write scripts and um, it was very frustrating I'd get them rejected and then I wouldn't write for quite a while and then I'd get mad at myself about why did I move down if I'm not gonna what am I doing down here if I'm not gonna try to write but I got you know I got some encouraging that's just this guy, Cy Rosen, who was a uh, writer on the original Newhart show. I still can't believe it as I think of it. In these days, you couldn't send an email. He actually wrote a letter to me after yeah. I sent in a spec script and said, hey, there's some terrific jokes, but uh, you, sh- you you need to learn story structure. I'm talking to him a week from today. Are you kidding me? No. I've never met him, but oh, wow. tell him that his letter meant everything to me at a moment when I needed it. And, uh, and yeah, if you could put us in touch, that would be great. Oh I'd yeah. I'll, yeah. Him a note. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And so little moments like that. Um, and I started trying to write for some comics that came on the Griffin show, usually ones that I felt kind of not intimidated by. And, and then I tried, then, then we're very generously, said, hey, write some jokes for me. I'll do them in the show. And so I actually started writing a few jokes um, for Merv's show before I before I ended up getting my job on The Tonight Show. Uh, so all those things kind of helped my confidence and helped me just have a beginning sense of I might actually be able to do this. Okay. And I guess your agent sent a pack 
um, a sample? No, uh, much luckier than that. Uh, oh. I didn't have an agent, so I hadn't sold anything. And I, I was facing right. this catch-22 of, uh, no agent is interested unless you really can make money off of you. And I couldn't sell anything, and nobody would read anything unless it was submitted by an agent. Right. And so uh, uh, Amy Howard was uh, an agent, a young agent at William Morris, who was assigned to the Griffin Show. I mean, William Morris actually on um, the show. Um, um, would she would she would show up at the green room and, and have a conversation with him and be the face of William Morris? So I got to know Amy really well over the years. You know, whatever I'm proud of you, I knew where I guess. And she said to me at one point, knowing what I wanted to do, and I think she felt I could do it. Um, said, hey, it's nice, she's looking for writers. Did you give me some material? I'll submit it for you. And so that's what, uh, how the material got to the Ray Sillers' desk at the Tonight Show. And when did you get that phone call? Well, this is really crazy. Uh, because uh, <laughs> I didn't hear anything okay. for quite a while. And I was just, I was getting to a point where I just seemed desperate to start my career. And uh, so I, there's like a 2% chance that there would be good news, but I just, I called Ray. I just kind of out of the blue called Ray. And I just said, uh, I submitted some material. I didn't know if you had a chance to read it. Um, and Ray uh, just kind of, you know, didn't pause and said, uh, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I did read it. I did read it. So you want to come work there? Mm. And it was just crazy. It was just like, you know, you haven't heard from somebody for a long time. Right. You know, the, really, it's a no. And uh, somehow it became a yes, magically. So just I just had to just go outside and walk around the neighborhood, go outside the Griffin Show, deepest, darkest Hollywood in those days. And... Uh, uh, I just say in those days because a, a lot of building has been done there. It was pretty bad, a sad place when I, back in the late 70s. Mm. No, it was, I guess it was 1980. And um, so, yes, yes, Ray said you want to come work here. Um, and it was scary, actually, even though I had no dependents, didn't own a house, but still, they only gave you a 13 week deal. Right. So, you know, I was kind of. At the Griffin Show, I could have stayed there for a lot longer, and I had to I had to leave that job to go take a thirteen week deal. But it, it seems like a no brainer. But I know at the time I was nervous about it. It might be thirteen weeks. I'm out of I'm out of work. Um, so anyway, it was you know it was both an incredible opportunity and very uh, scary at the same time. And when you joined, that's when the Tonight Show went from ninety minutes to sixty minutes. You're doing your research precisely. My first day was the day that, uh, uh, yes, it became a 60-minute show. Johnny's production company now owned it right. for the first time. And so when I got hired, Ray said, you're probably never going to meet Johnny. And then he, he seemed as surprised as I was. He, he stepped in my uh, office doorway and uh, about two days in and said, Johnny wants to meet you. And I, I guess, according to Ray, it was like he was kind of reinvigorated by mm. This production company owning it, and it's now an hour, and I guess reinvested in the show. So uh, you wanted to meet me, so it was very cool. You know, he'd been doing it so long, even then, mm. that uh, I'd been a little kid when my 
then I'd go to sleep. My parents watching Johnny Carson and Tonight Show. Um, you know, so it's rare that kind of thing happens when you get to meet this guy. That right. You know, uh, you know he yeah, this amazing figure in, in the world at that time. I mean, the Johnny Tonight Show is incredibly huge, and he's been doing it for such a long time that he was just this icon. So now I'm in his office. Meeting him, so that, that was very cool. That was very cool. And he could not have been warmer or any a lot of stuff. I would like to give a non-plug to uh, Pushkin's book on Johnny. I think it was a hit job by probably Johnny's biggest fear, somebody he was, you know, close to. He let his guard down to. Right. Wrote this terrible book. Uh, Johnny could not have been warmer or you know interested in more interested in me. I mean, I mean, it was really great. It was really great. And what's interesting is you join, and then two weeks into it, you had your anniversary special. Right. So you had a big party, and you've been there for two weeks. And let me add this. I have a good story about the party. Uh, this woman who will remain nameless was our writer's assistant. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I guess she had not been to that many events with an open bar uh, to know her limit. But... Um, we had it at the upstairs primary at the Beach Grill in Beverly Hills. It was at that time, very, very cool, expensive restaurant in Beverly Hills. So, you know, I'm two weeks into the show, and now I'm at the Tonight Show party. There's Fred, there's Doc, Tommy Newsom, you know, everybody hanging out, having a great time at this party. And so um, we get to this moment, we're sitting at our tables. Uh, and again, I meet John, say hi to Johnny, who I've already met, who greets me warmly. We sit at our tables, and uh, our table with uh, guy Greg Fields is another new writer who's uh, a legend to some in the, in the business. Uh, sadly, passed away some years ago. Um, uh, Greg and I and a couple of the other writers, our dates are at the t- table. And uh, so Johnny says, thanks everybody for being there, and then he brings up his wife, uh, Joanna, and because uh, he says, you know, she put the evening together. I like her to stay. So she she spoke in this kind of Jackie Kennedy voice, this really low, okay. you know, just it reminded me of Jackie Kennedy, just uh, whispery almost. So the room was incredibly quiet. And at this moment, this writer said her name. This, this writer, our writer's assistant, who was a bit of a loose cannon, but a very, very entertaining person. Uh had passed out. She has her head down on the table. Wow. And I think that's it for the night for her. Um, as Joanna's saying, I'd like to thank everybody uh, for being here. You did such wonderful work on the show. Writer's assistant rises from the dead and shouts, who cares? And then everybody's head swivels toward our table. <laughs> mm. and, I, and not happy. Right. Peter the Sally, who was the, uh, I guess, uh, also, I don't know who's an exact loser at that time. Fred Cordova, you know, Ed McMahon, you know, I couldn't quite see Johnny. I should have love it. And I, I swear to God, I thought, that's, I'm dead. I'm, I'm at this table. Everyone at this table is going to be vaporized. Right. And uh, I actually, you know, Paul Reiser did a That's Johnny show, uh, a show about backstage at The Tonight Show a couple years right. ago. My nephew worked on it. And he reconnected Jeff Sotsing. Johnny's nephew, who runs his foundation now. Mm-hmm. And Jeff was there when I was there. 
And I brought this story up to Jeff, and I said, do you remember that? And he goes, oh, my God, and this is Jeff's nephew talking. I was at the table next year, and I thought I was going to get fired. Um, but it was like a dysfunctional, a good dysfunctional family in a way. It was like no one, and maybe the China era, nobody ever mentioned it. Nobody mm. ever never came up. <laughs> she got away with it. <laughs> but somehow, I thought my career was, was over two weeks in. Wow. So... Tonight Show is known for having an office for the monologue writers and an office for the sketch writers. You always wanted, is that true? Well, there were four, we, we would occasionally write some monologue, and certainly for the anniversary show for guest hosts. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that point, there were four monologue writers who had been there so long, they, they were in their own universe. This guy, Larry Klein, never even came in. I never met him when he was home. His partner was Hal Goodman, who would be there, and I would see him occasionally. And then there was Michael Berry and uh, Jim Mohan, and they had been they had been there forever. I think I think they both started very young. I think Jim Mohan was like nineteen or something when he started in New York. So that was this. They were kind of their own world, and then we wrote uh, anything else that came up. Anything else that usually Johnny did from the desk, but occasionally. Some monologue stuff, and I, I know the next year's anniversary show. I got a joke in that you know the monologue that got a big laugh. I remember, which was great. But most most of we wrote anything else, blue card ad libs, you know, to mm-hmm. desk spots, picture spots, sketches. And so probably for me, the the high water mark was uh, I wrote uh, a sketch that I heard later was one of Johnny's favorites. Uh, called uh, Who's On First with Ronald Reagan. I was going to get to that one, yes. Okay. No, but you can tell the story now. Okay. Uh, occasionally, I never knew if it was Johnny or just Fred, but uh, Fred would rattle our cage through, through uh, Ray Siller. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Carson was very unhappy with the material. So on this particular occasion, uh, the material was thrown out and it was in a way that even Ray seemed a little nervous. Like, there might be some house cleaning going on here. And it was like, all hands on deck, panic time. So not only did we have to rewrite a spot for that night, uh, but Fred said uh, to Ray that uh, they'd, there was a show Fridays. It was a kind right. of rip off Saturday Night Live on ABC. And by the way, uh, Larry David was on it and Michael Richards was on it as performers. Right, I'm... And um, this guy, John Work, had a Reagan wig. And really, you could put it on your dog and he would look like Reagan. His wig right. was spectacular. And uh, the show had been canceled, but Fred tells Ray, we've bought the wig and it's <laughs> on its way over. And Johnny wants a sketch, a Reagan sketch, immediately. So that's the situation. There's high panic <laughs> in our rooms. And... Three of, really had four other writers, uh, Ray, Kevin Mohan, my, uh, Bob Smith, and myself. Ray, Kevin, and Bob are going to work on that night's material. I'm sent to my office, come up with the Reagan sketch immediately. And uh, I mean, I was just like, you know, as you can imagine, just like the worst scenario possible. Um, and uh, I don't know, I was there for like sitting, looking at the blank page for like 20 minutes or so. And then the I don't know how it happened. I don't know. There were certain names mm-hmm. in the news and in the administration 
that collided in my brain with the Who's On First sketch, James Watt, right. Yasser Arafat. And I, and I kept trying to force, in my first draft, I kept trying to force, because it looks so perfect on paper, Bacon, but right. it's spelled again. But, uh, that was forced, obviously, and Ray caught that. Um, but I just started playing around with it, and it was just like I just knew it worked. I just knew it worked. And I remember handing it to Ray, my hand kind of shaking, and, you know, just say, hey, I think this, I think this could work. And uh, he agreed, and we took another pass at it. We gave it to Johnny, and, and, and it just worked. It just worked. And um, so it's basically, if those don't know the sketch, and Reagan was known to not be that well kind of versed in the day-to-day details of the job. He's really accused of that by, you know, either comedically or seriously by whoever the person talking about it was. But that was kind of a, a thing people said about Reagan. So, so it was perfect in that sense. Like he's being, we have uh, Fred Holiday playing uh, James Baker and he's being briefed before a, a press conference. And it's just like, uh, you know, I, I forgive me, it's been so long, but uh, okay, I wanna, you know, so let's start, first of all, you know, they're gonna ask you about something the interior. Uh, and it became what? Yes. What? Yes. That kind of a thing. And then, uh, uh, well, oh, yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, sir. That kind of, just playing with words like that. And it's on YouTube, so I won't do any more of it, but it's been too long for me. <laughs> I was actually going to include it at the end of the episode. What's that? I was going to include it at the end of the episode because it's on YouTube. Okay, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I was very touched that Fred Holiday played James Baker passed away couple years ago and I read an obituary where his daughter said that in fact oh Jeff Zodzing told me the same thing it just meant so much to Fred it just became this, such a popular piece and it was in the anniversary show every year uh, Jeff told me his daughter had mentioned in the obituary Jeff told me he had lunch with Fred and Fred did both parts of the sketch verbatim <laughs> to him at lunch um, and uh, a highlight for me was I you know, loved the Smothers Brothers. Yeah, they had such a great show and variety show on CBS. I recommend anybody listening to check that out. A very, very edgy and very political, uh, kind of a leftist point of view against the Vietnam War. And I love that. And um, I'm standing backstage here on the show that night. And uh, I forget which one of them said it to the other. Said uh, after the sh- when the sketch ended, that's a great sketch. And I, I didn't have either the ego or whatever to say, hey, that was my sketch. <laughs> but it was thrilling enough to hear it be the fly on the wall and one of them say that to the other. Uh, so that was a real high point, uh, you know, my time at the Tonight Show. You know, when they show the clips, the clips I always remember from the sketches are the one where he and Betty White are playing Tarzan and Jane, the, mm-hmm. the Who's on First, the Copper Clapper Caper, and the, the, the Thesaurus Funeral. And yeah, I remember that one. Yeah. You were, were you there for the Betty White one, too? Uh, no, I wasn't there, no. Just the who's on first. And that was okay. The copper clapper. That was, that was in 68. No, I didn't think you were there. No, that was 1968. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you got to write a bunch of Karnaks, right? Yes. Karnaks. And, and that, that was kind of because I'd seen Karnaks since I was a kid. Right. Well, yeah, yeah. Oh, everything, everything. Art everything. Fern. 
a full-time thing, you know, just like, <laughs> and when I first showed up, I was really intimidated. But after, you know, after a while, you, you start to learn the language of it all. You know, you start figuring out uh, how to do it. Um, so it's really, I've said years ago, I've said a long time, but it was like com- joke writing, certainly comedy grad school for me. Like I really, over three years or so, writing all those jokes, you know, I just really learned a lot. And at one point you were um, actually let go. Well, have you done your research? Yes. It turned out, in fact, Greg, who was fantastic, what a character. And he ended up, he came up, it was his idea, he, he wrote for Rodney Dangerfield. And he came up with the idea of back to school. Uh, and I think he gets co-credit for the script as well. And he, he ran in Living Color. I mean, he had a pretty good career. And uh, Greg and I were hired at the same time, let go at the same time. He came into my office, I was at the office next door to Pat McCormick. And, and Greg, just listening, we hear Pat's voice, and he puts his ear to the wall. And then Greg mouths to me, he's talking to Johnny. So we both put our ears to the wall, and, and uh, Pat is saying, you know, the legendary Pat McCormick, right? He was really, the, right. you know, famous actor in popular films. He's on sketch shows and talk shows as a, as a personality at the time. Very well known. I said, you know, that's one of the things I work in there. That's how it's working. Yeah. And um, and the first night I was there, Ray took me out for drinks at Chadney's with Pat. You know, so I really felt like, wow, I can't believe I'm here. Um, and then Greg realizes, uh, hey, Pat's on the phone with Johnny. So we're listening, and it was like Pat's kind of begging for his job. No, no, I'm here all the time. I'm here all the time. I'm here all the time. No. <laughs> I know for a fact that he, like when he made the film, Robert Altman's film, I think a wedding he was in. He went to Nashville for several weeks, and Johnny didn't know he was gone. And uh, Tom Moore, who's a friend of mine and great writer, uh, covered for him for like several weeks, turning in his material. And so Pat wasn't always there, and so he got washed, he got fired, and then Johnny was mad. And I, I don't know. We, it turned out in later, it turned out that Ray had a tendency to let go of the most recently hired writer or writers. And then tell Johnny he shook up the staff. And I ended up knowing of about seven people, eight people that that happened to. Wow. But this is the first time I knew about it. And I was getting more and more on the show. It made no sense. I was, I, I lived my life writing, was trying to trying to earn the job, yeah. you know, going to bed at night, writing on a legal pad, waking up in the morning, eating a bowl of cereal, trying to write jokes for the tonight's bit on the, you know. And I was starting to get some more material used. And, so they raised gets in my office. Uh, some bad news, Johnny's not picking up your option. Right. And I met with Fred. He wanted to meet with me. I don't know why I met with Fred, but I did. And he said, you know, I'm sure, you know, your town will be back, you know, or something like that. But it just, they were hollow words to me. I was just crushed. And uh, I was out for quite a while. And then uh, they had... Ray let go other, hired and let go other writers in the meantime. And after about, I don't know, nine, ten months, something like that, um, Kevin Mulholland and I become friends with, and there were two Mulhollands. Jim was the monologue writer. Kevin worked on the sketch side of things. And um, he, he knew I could do the job, and so Ray's looking to hire some other people, and he brought my name up again and showed 
Ray my material, and, and uh, so Ray hired me again. Mm. <laughs> Showed it to Johnny, and Johnny liked it, and I got hired again. Um, and then, and then once I wrote the uh, Who's on First sketch, I could have been there for as long as I wanted. Right. And I was finally in the inner sanctum. Uh, but you know, the bloom was off the rose for a little too thin. When I was out, I realized. I mean, there's much more variety out there now than there was then. At that time, it was really Johnny or nothing. Right. Um, it wasn't even Letterman yet. And uh, so I realized that I had to really get into uh, writing scripted comedy. Uh, and it was kind of a dead end. So I knew I, I'd already done trying to do that. I've been writing spec scripts. And I worked, had a, got hired in a couple of things in, on the interim. And so I started kind of having a career, but I really wanted the regular work and money. And then I wanted a chance to prove I could do it, to go back. Right. And so I went back, and I was there, you know, a couple of years, but uh, and there's another way in which the boom was off the rose. It's like somebody breaking up with you and then saying they want you back. I, you know, it just seemed like it spoiled it a little bit for me. Uh, you know, I was never quite the same. Uh, and so when I left... To go to the, uh, I went to think of the night because the two writers that I'd worked with in the room wanted to hire me in that show. And I've been talking to them about, you know, after a couple of years, I, I was there for life if I wanted. I was just finding myself kind of wanting to do these things. And so this one of the writers that were the head writer in this upcoming on the thick show said, they kept wanting to hire me. And they kept giving, offering me more money. And they finally offered me twice as much as I was making on tonight's show guaranteed uh, for six months, I think. And so... Uh, and Jeremy Stevens and Tom Moore? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I left and it was, you know... <laughs> anyway, Sorry. it ended up not being... Are we on? Are we... Oh, we're on. I just played the theme song The Thick of the Night. My God, you do your research. Um it ended up being uh, a very creatively frustrating experience. Uh, you know, but I'll say this. that And then when I left Thick of the Night, I had some rough times trying to get my career started in, ha in writing scripted comedy. But by the time of the 88 writer strike, Larry and I were running Night Court, and we ran into Ray and Kevin Mohan, you know, on the picket line, and they were still at the Tonight Show, and I just felt like, well, it was really, really hard, but I think I made the right move mm. in the long arc of things. Yeah. Um, wow. as you, when did you write the Happy Days episode, I Drink Therefore I Am? With Larry. Well, Larry. Larry was on Happy Days, and we talked about writing different things together, and we had. And, and uh, so he was generous enough to bring me in on a script for Happy Days. Was that during when you were not working on The Tonight Show, or is that during your time on The Tonight Show? You know, I can't precisely remember. I think okay. it was on The Tonight Show at the time, but I can't precisely remember. I wanted to ask you about this one guy that when I was doing research, I came up with it. I couldn't believe it. Uh, Monty Adam? Yeah, Monty. Yeah. Okay, so he worked at The Tonight Show. Right. The same years as you were around? I worked with Monty at The Tonight Show for about not six, seven months. That's good how long. Right. Then, he, then he went to Thick of the Night. Yes. Then, I forgot he was there. Yes. Then he went to the Joan Rivers Late Show. Right. Then he went to the Pat Sajak show. Right. So there was no way Johnny was ever going to hire him back. Was you going to hire Monty back? Yeah. I don't think, 
I don't think he got along with Ray very well, so I don't think uh, Ray was going to bring him back. No, because I, when I saw the guy's when I saw the credits, and I'm like, wow, he wrote for all the people that tried to take uh, Johnny on. Oh, well, that's true too. I didn't think of that. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And what was uh, yeah. Gilbert Gottfried like? Did you ever deal with? I didn't know him well. That he was, you know, I saw him in New York when I was in the Griffin Show, and I, he was kind of legendary, and he was amazing. He just had never seen anything like it. He was a really young guy at the time. However, he seemed to be in the body of an old man, uh, mm. even then. Um, and uh, something about his posture and his voice, and he seemed like an angry old man, comedically. I mean, that right. was the way he was. Um, at, I don't know, how old he was, 25 or something? When he was, uh, when he was on Saturday Night Live, he was 25, so it was 1980, yeah. So, uh, and, you know, it was a bad show. We tried to write for him, but he'd end up just kind of ad-libbing his own stuff. He wouldn't do what we wrote much, maybe a little bit, but not much. He just, you know, it was such a, it was a show that fell apart. I don't know how deep down any of these roads you want to go, but they, we had basically written sketches all summer long. It was so disorganized. Right. Fred Silverman was uh, the exec producer. He had only been a network executive and president. Exactly. I don't think he'd ever produced the show. And they realized when they tried to then organize the first rehearsal, that they didn't have time to camera block the sketches. So almost everything we'd written all summer was going to be useless, couldn't be used. Right. So it's just, that's some sense of the disorganization. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it was a mess of a show. I, um, I was doing yeah. research on, um, I went on a website and it was about thick of the night. And they were like, to think, they were like, to think about it, Letterman had 12 writers and he was on four nights a week for an hour. And, most of the time, thick they said had six or seven writers, and he was on five nights a week for an hour and a half. It was a mess. They didn't. He didn't know what the show was supposed to be, and he didn't know who he was supposed to be. Is he a sexy uh, crooner? Is he a rock star? Is he a stand-up? Right. You know, he was he was all over the map with what his own attitude was. A lot of mud. A lot of mud wrestling, though. Well, it was all over the map. It was right. just all over the map, and there and there just there was just it was a mess. It was just a complete mess. Um, but you know, in 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 retrospect, uh, I was I I agree with my my choice. It was a very hard choice to make, but mm -hmm. I agree with my choice that I I needed the career. It seemed like, to have real longevity. I needed to get into scripted comedy, and it was a tough transition, but I got there. Uh, and it, so in retrospect only, it was it was a smart move, although it seemed like I'd made a terrible mistake at various points along the way. And they also did launch a lot of musical acts. Well, that was really cool, because he, he had all kinds of musical uh, connections from producers from the you know, you know, popular music world. So uh, Red Hot Chili yeah. Peppers made their TV so debut. Backstage were just unbelievable. I, you know, sometimes uh, I'm reminded. I'll talk to somebody that remind me of who somebody they got to hang out with a little bit, uh, who happened to be at this crazy show thick of the night. But yeah, who I don't know who else. I haven't even thought of the show in so many years. Oh, Bon Jovi was, made their TV debut. Wow. Yeah. And, oh yeah, yeah. It was, it was yeah. remarkable. You did a show called Charlie and Company, which. Every review I've Monty, heard... Monty knew, knew the head writer. Yeah. Alan Katz. Oh. Oh, what? Charlie and Company? Yeah, right. Right. Every review I've seen, it's basically, they say it's Flip Wilson trying to do the Cosby show. 
was a gig. It was uh, actually getting paid to write a. Oh no, I'm not. I'm not. Comedy. No, I'm not saying no. anything negative. Yeah, I, but is that what you would? Is that how you would describe it? It was another show that didn't quite work. You know, it was just. I mean, and the young cats had a great career, and he's very talented. But sometimes shows come together, and sometimes they don't. And you know, Gladys Knight was really charming, and I was amazed that she could do. She seemed like somebody who could do anything, everything. Mm. But it. And Flip Wilson is, um, you know, fantastic yeah. talent, but it just didn't come together, you know. And you know who played one of the sons on the show? Jillian White, Urkel. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, he played one of the sons. <laughs> well, um, I guess I've worked with everybody without knowing. That. <laughs> yeah, you did a special. That was the year that was. That had a really big, talented writing staff. Well, I'll tell you a sketch I'm proud of on that show. Yeah, I couldn't find it. Um, it was uh, Rudy for the Pope. Uh, <laughs> uh, at the time, MTV had a contest. We could be Rudy for a rock group. Uh, and John Paul II was touring the world, a certain part of the world. And so uh, I came up with the idea of this uh, young dope who had won the con- MTV contest to be a Rudy for the Pope. And uh, he didn't know what celibacy meant, but it, it really didn't attract the babes. <laughs> uh, and they're, they're, you know, a lot more religious than you think. Right. Of travel. Um, and this sketch played great. And when I first turned it on, I mean, it really went over great. And I, I worked with David Frost. He was a producer on the show. Yeah. Every day. He was on the writer's table every day. And that was hanging out with David Frost. That was a really uh, big writers group. When I look for a writer, I want to interview. I looked at credits, and a lot of them were on that. Oh, it's a great writing staff. They went out to do some really interesting things. Um, but uh, it was only yeah. supposed only supposed to be a one shot. I think they'd have loved it for be to be a series. But uh, you know, they they had a producer that had done talk shows, afternoon talk shows, Mike Douglas. Oh. So you know, it was just. And they had a big, like a Saturday Night Live kind of castle of performers. And, you know, they wanted the group like David Crawford had back in the early 60s. Right. But again, it just didn't come together. I don't know if it was wrong. I mean, if you had somehow captured... I mean, I wrote a really edgy Reagan sketch they didn't want to do. It, it just didn't have the courage of its convictions, I would say. Okay. And you and Larry wrote a movie in 1985 called Without a Clue. I, yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. No, IMDb listed it in the 10 uh, most interesting retakes of the Sherlock Holmes story. I, I've been thrilled. My, my wife's found some, my son has found some mentions in different articles or different mentions of that. It seems to read highly among Holmes fans in the Pantheon, which I'm thrilled about. I was, um, it was one of those moments where I was. I brought it to Larry, the idea that uh, I was watching this HBO version, I forget who played Holmes and who played Watson. Uh, and at the wrap-up, the idea came to me at the wrap-up where, you know, Watson has to say, but, 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 Holmes, isn't it? Holmes is so condescending to Watson. Yeah. You know, for God's sake, you know, basically. <laughs> Has you been 
breathing uh, while this has been going on. Watson, here are the facts. And uh, it just, I don't know, it just bounced right into my head. What if Watson was the actual detective and Holmes was an actor he'd hired? And, um, and I really, I hadn't written a screenplay at that time. I brought it to Larry. He loved the idea. Larry knew more about structure than me. So uh, we put together a first draft, and while we're writing it, uh, Anna Spielberg came out with Young Sherlock Holmes. And I remember just was so devastated. Just like, who's going to want to make two Sherlock Holmes projects? Right. But go ahead and write it, people, because that's how, that's what happened. And uh, I, I didn't. We didn't love the director who immediately told us, you know, he's going to take the, all the sitcom things out of it. He, he just he meant it as a shot. You know, because uh, you knew we were working on Nightcore at the time. Right. And then he went ahead and added. He took out all, we painstakingly found all kinds of Holmes references to put in from the books. And he stripped them all out and put loads of just silly jokes in. And it was uh, very disappointing. A really good director who could have brought in, you know, some real other layers that, that we we didn't have the talent at that point to bring to it. But it I think, made it really stand out. But, uh, I think we had somebody who we had great actors that the director I think undercut what it could have been. Okay, so you went to work for a season on My Sister Sam. Right, right. And it taught you, Larry said it, it taught you guys how to be showrunners. Well, we I think we learned a lot. You know, you know, you do uh, twenty-one episodes, twenty-two episodes. And, you know, it was my first time being on a scripted comedy show. So yeah, you learn you learn a huge amount. And Diane English ran it, and she obviously knows what she's doing. Uh, she, Diane's very talented. Really, more than jokes, I think knows would focus on story and structure. I think she'd agree to that. And, um, I'm not saying she didn't like jokes or come up with them, but that but her focus on the story and structure. So I think it was somebody terrific for us to sit at the table with all the time. You know, during that season. Mm-hmm. And break stories and discuss scripts and all of that, and run throughs and come back and discuss the run throughs and so forth. Okay, so then you got um, hired on Night Court, right? For right. the which was fantastic. I mean, it was a top ten NBC comedy on that great Thursday night lineup uh, at the time. Yes, um, and so for the first. Back, backward. The first episode I really liked was Dan the Walking Time Bomb. Oh yeah, yeah. Where uh, the guy uh, from high school um, t- puts him on a chain to a bo- to a bomb. The only one he had to guess, like Rumpelstiltskin, had to guess who he was. That's right. Right, and he's like, That's right. Well, I think one of the lines I forgot the guy's name, but he goes, "And I slept with three generations of your family." And he goes, "No, but I'd like to hear the story." <laughs> I had gotten a laugh in our writer's room doing some physical whatever reaction when he finds out it's a bomb, when Dan Fielding finds out it's a bomb. And it didn't work in the run-through. So I never knew if Ryan was just messing with me, but Larkett was an intimidating guy and a brilliant, brilliant comedic force. And we're talking at the run-through, and Ryan says, well, Gary, show John what you did. <laughs> I started to do it, and I said, and, and uh, Mark is looking at me like, yes, 
yes, would you please show me how you are a comic genius and you can teach me? And uh, I started to do it and demurred. Uh, right. <laughs> but I like how he. But I like how he's like. If you if you if you uh, look at the uh, case of bomb in my briefcase, that you'll definitely see that um, bomb in my briefcase. You just kept on. Like, that. If you look at my briefcase, you'll definitely. No, something like if you look at the precedent in the case of bomb in my briefcase, and he would just like <laughs> like that. I was trying to get out that he had a bomb in his briefcase. Exactly. I don't tell you what. Laura, in, in the hands of Laura Kett, a moment like that would, would be gigantically funny. I mean, I, he really, I mean, he, he just, uh, I look back this many years later, I mean, he was just incredible. He was just incredible. He would do stuff on show night that, I mean, and we, we'd written it or, um, you know, seen run-throughs with it, and uh, and he would add some spin to it, and we would just be out of our chairs laughing backstage uh, at the monitors. I mean, what a talent. What a talent. He was really remarkable. And that was uh, Reinhold's laugh at the end of the show that you always heard? Oh, it was his father's. Oh, it's his father's? All these years later. I think it's his dad's. Oh, interesting. Okay, so yeah. then another day in the life. Oh, by the way, his dad used to come to every show. Oh, okay. So I, as I think about it, yeah. Yeah, okay, another day in the life. Right. So I asked that... Was it, you know, did they cobble, like, bits together that didn't get on and then do a show like that? And Larry they said... They had done one. That's why it was another day. Yeah. They had done one the year before, before we got there. Right. And I think it was one where uh, they were out of stories. It was based on a real New York thing where they had to do... An, plow through a huge number of cases so the people would be released. Right. So it was based on that, but it was, I think they were up against it and they came up with a way to just to, without having to build a, a full story, just a bunch of quick little blackouts and quick, have, you know, have some kind of rough storyline through it, but basically just do a bunch of quick little bits. Right. Yeah, it's my favorite episode. And this is a story I was, I told you on the email that I used to watch the show with my dad. And I love that. I love that. Yeah. And this night we were watching it in two different rooms for whatever reason because thursday night meant um i got to stay up to watch night court so i got to stay up late so the the, the final scene where christine where, where the guy is arm wrestling um oh, yeah, harry, yeah. harry and christine flashes him yeah so the next morning my dad gets up and goes oh god did you see night court last night i'm like yeah he goes yeah, but you saw it from your bedroom, which faces south. I saw it from my bedroom, which faces east. So I got a different view of of the show. So I got to see what Marky, you know, I got to see Marky Post. And I'm and I'm like, I'm nine years old, so I'm like, oh my god. So then I waited to the summer reruns, and I went in my parents' bedroom, and I watched it, and I, I was like, you lied to me. You didn't see anything. I love you kept you let it go for that long. He let it go into the summer reruns. He knew I was gonna when it when they reran it. I was gonna try to sneak into my parents' room, and I did. Oh my god! <laughs> Very good. Yeah, he, I mean, he knew like you know, it's Marky oh, Post. It's Marky Post. Yeah. yeah. And then the other three episodes I really liked was Danny. Uh, Danny get his gun. Got his gun. Uh huh. And I was told that you guys were pressed into service because of the writer's strike on the on the second and third episodes of those. Um, 
let me think. I can't remember that. I, I just know the writer's strike. I, it nearly broke me that year. 88 was, a, I think, a six-month-long writer's strike. And um, other shows, as it seemed to be winding down, were hiring writers. And Reinhold had come to the world of Danny Arnold where everything was done at the last second. Uh, in the middle of filming episodes, pages would be brought down to the set in Bunny Miller. And uh, Reinhold just didn't, really the best writers, anybody we knew of, they were getting hired. And Reinhold didn't approach the show. And in this that second year we were on the show, Lynn Whitbloomer, who created Malcolm, uh, left, nice. as did Tom Straw. And uh, so the staff was Larry, me, and Bob Underwood with Tom Reader twice a week. That was it. And we didn't know, nobody we knew of available, and we really didn't have time to pull through skips because we had to hit the ground running. It was like, all right. Mm-hmm. And the network didn't care how long pre-production we needed. They want the shows when they want the shows. They, they would say that, oh, we understand, but they want the shows when they want the shows. So usually you need, if you're going to do a full season, of, I don't even know how anybody does it anyway, but 21 to 24 episodes, you need pre-production. And as it is, you run out of your scripts, but you need like two months of pre-production to try to get as many scripts as you can. Mm. I think we had four four weeks, something like that. And, and, and they took the first episode and made it an hour. So it was like they burned up two episodes right away. And uh, so anyway, what, uh, oh, so the whole thing, and then Riney was trying to step back, which added to the whole mm. exhaustion of it all, uh, and have Larry and I run the show. And we brought in Neil Thompson and Nancy Steen, who Larry knew from Paramount that worked at Happy Days. And they were godsons, hugely talented. Neil later became my partner. Very, very talented. They were godsons. So it's still a tiny staff that we had there. But nonetheless, uh, it was just from the beginning. We'd meet with Randy after the run through, round five. We'd sit. Randy would, you know, think and think and think. And we'd go back to start a rerun on page one at 10 o'clock. And he nearly broke us, and he realized he couldn't do that anymore. But I guess I see that in the sense of. It was exhausting. We'd worked at 2 in the morning, worked at 5 in the morning, and once Neil went home after a rewrite and his daughter was leaving for school. Wow. Um, and so, and like, probably by February, I know my brain just shut down. Uh, we'd no longer do that for about a week. Um, so, my memory's a little lazy, but I'm sure Chris in the service was the, if you watch phrase, I guess, for that season. Yeah, because it was just absolutely all hands on deck, and anybody had to dive in and do whatever needed to be done. Because they went out on a cliffhanger. You know, did Dan? I think you wrote the uh, cliffhanger. Yeah, you did write the cliffhanger, and then uh, Larry told me was that you when you got back when the strike ended, you were like you were told that it was a going to be a two part conclusion of the cliffhanger. Yeah, and then it was the lead off the season, and it was like October twenty fifth, and I think. He said it was like September 15th when you walked in. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was crazy. It was insane. Yeah. It was just like, I don't know how we all didn't just uh, have nervous breakdowns, you know, curl up on the floor and cry. It's got uh, some of my favorite lines in it, though. Which is? One of my, when um, when um, Roz gives the eulogy to Dan and says, Dan Fielding would give you the shirt off his back, and you know that his pants and underwear will soon follow. Uh-huh. <laughs> I like that line. 
I also like the yeah. one that Constitution episode where where Dan saves her life, Roz's life, when she goes oh, into a wow. diabetic yeah. shock. That's right. I remember that now. Yeah, yeah. That was there, and he asked me to ask. Yeah, very traumatic, and, yeah. and you know that was Randy. He loved that. He loved that. He's playing really with the traumatic thing. He loved the show. The, yeah. It was a very last happy show, but he didn't mind the show with me in the last two after she left. And on that episode, Danny got his gun. You used the guy who played uh, in Lieutenant Scanlon on Barney Miller. He was the army recruiter. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, Barney Miller's huge in Ryan's life. Absolutely huge. So everything and anything connected to it, you know, mm. he was very fond of. Now, you left and you did a show, which is on YouTube. And I saw it and I thought it was a really funny pilot called Acting Sheriff. what Larry was saying too. Oh, what a character. Hanging out with Goulet was great. Oh my God, what a what a unique, unique soul. What a what a amazing wild character. And the the character we wrote was kind of bigger than life crazy and he was he equaled it in every way. And he was just so out there and the funny but also just this ego like we can't even understand. Like like medieval kings have it. You know, of course perfect from Camelot. It's very popular on YouTube. On YouTube, it's one of the. There's a long list of failed. That, sorry, no, no offense. That they call failed pilots, and there's like 500 of them, and that's one that's very popular. Well, I'm thrilled to hear that. Don't surprise me. I'm thrilled to hear that. Yeah. Um, 
apologize. Uh, no, the word failed pilots. That's getting what... on the air, so yeah. I, I guess, it, well, it failed in the sense of not getting on the air. Exactly. Uh, but as you, as you tell me, and thanks, that helps me a lot. Yeah. I love hearing that. that uh, it's found uh, a certain audience. It's great. It's thrilling to me. Yeah, people are like, why didn't this get on the air? And then there were people, some people researched what they picked over it, and they're like, oh, come on. Yeah, we were told people in testing thought he was thought it was uh, Goulet was stupid and you know and, and silly and I don't know I don't know if you believe all those right. groups. Um, yeah, there was a similar show though when you were saying they make the character, uh, the other character. They did a show I saw on the pilots. It was a actor who they made into a sheriff, and it was Dana Carvey who was the young guy who this is before Silent Live. Who and he his thing was he was incredibly green, hmm. and it, it, that's the only similarity. Like the humor was completely it was it was a bad sitcom humor, hmm. but so I don't know if the I don't know if the, you know because that was what they said you should do and it didn't work for that show, but you know yeah well, I see what you're saying yeah 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 I mean I think if we had the I mean John Putch we loved and if, I think we found oh, yeah. him. But I don't know if we'd had Dana Carvey as a, you know, of course, that was before Saturday Night Live. But, he, you know, Dana's brilliantly funny. I mean, you know, maybe he could have helped us find a character better. I don't know. Yeah, John, but that's where I found, I was looking for John Putch stuff. Because I was like, because I watched uh, on YouTube game, um, uh, the one with his mother where he's uh, Angel Dusted. Oh. The movie he did with Gene Stapleton, his mom. Uh-huh. And he was so good. I'm like, what else was he in? And I saw that. Oh, and I, And now he's a director. That's the thing with a pilot, too. Yeah. It really, you know, it's just sad that uh, John, you know, enjoyed the show and our experience. You take this ride with everybody, and then you just get one phone call and done. Mm. And then you did a show you, did you, I don't know if you wrote any episodes for, but you were a consultant on Whoops? Well, we wrote episodes, yeah. Gary Jacobs, I knew from Thick of the Night, was a really talented guy. He's teaching now at uh, UT Austin. Oh, that's good. And he ended, up ru- he ended up running Empty Nest. And he worked on the Newhart show with Arnie Kogan, uh, another comedy legend, Arnie Kogan, who I love. And uh, it was on Thick. And, and, and Gary and uh, Arnie worked as a team, and they worked on uh, this, the second Newhart show. I think it was called Newhart. Yeah. And, um, and, then, and, then, and then Gary got a development deal, and he created Wolves, right. which was a very out-there premise. But I, but really funny, really funny. Uh, and Gary's great talent. And uh, yeah, yeah. So we, were, we had a film deal at Disney where we did Acting Sheriff. And then when that didn't get picked up, Gary had developed Whoops. And I knew Gary. And so uh, we got hired. Oh, we were basically given to Whoops for a couple of days a week. And we wrote a couple of scripts. Okay. And then you went to work on the Sinbad show. Yeah, they tried to change who Sinbad was. It was just a nightmare in every way. Right. I, I think, um, you know, I, it was just like you either talk, you know, with a therapist in the room. Okay. Um, uh, for a long, long time about that or a brief time. Just say, you know, I don't, I don't think we nailed it. Maybe it wasn't the right idea. 
I, uh, there's a situation, I'll share this story. Every network wanted him, and Fox got him. And uh, we had a meeting at Fox, and uh, we are talking to the executives, and Rupert Murdoch walked in the room. Mm. And uh, you know, Tim had a, you know, ultimately, I mean, again, I feel badly about that. I, I think that maybe we didn't do justice for sin, you know, by Sinbad. But, uh, um, you know, but I, I, there are other ways in which, uh, I don't know if he was, he wanted to be in a scripted show because he wanted to ad-lib a lot right. as well. And so, you know, it was a difficult marriage in that sense. And, uh, but anyway, and, and you know, so that, for the number of months leading up to everything, we got along great, and I really enjoyed him, and he was funny and personable, and very, and I found him warm. And uh, but we'd be in the meeting sometimes, and, and he'd just be, it's just I think, just a funny guy, and he, he'd kind of you know get sparked by something and um, and run with it. And then, but we're in this meeting, and Rupert Murdoch walked in, and Sinbad was joking about something, and. and and I, I don't know why everybody else was engaged in what Sinbad was talking about, but I realized that Rupert Murdoch, I'm on a couch, and Rupert Murdoch's right across from me, leaning against the desk. And I realized, oh, Rupert Murdoch does not want to be interrupted or mm-hmm. talked over. So he, I'm the only one who realized this, and I'm looking, because he made eye contact with me, and I couldn't, it was like, <laughs> like I don't know if it's a velociraptor or what kind of uh, image from a horror movie, but when something locks eyes with you and you can't look away. Mm. And he just locked on to me and he just continued talking as if Sinbad and everybody else in the room didn't exist. He was just simply talking. And I realized, oh, I can't look away. I can't look away. <laughs> <laughs> he did not even slow up. He was just so powerful and used to, he is the only voice in the room. And I remember afterwards, like, like my shirt was damp. My socks were damp. Mm. Um, but anyway, uh, so I had a uh, moment of a man who is uh, now destroying our democracy. But uh, <laughs> I did have a moment with uh, Rupert Murdoch during that process. But anyway, it ended up being very disappointing. We, we just, um, everybody wanted a different thing. We kept getting orders to have some of the stand-up put in the script. Not, not that the script is golden, I will say that. Right. Um, and then, you know... Sinbad was talking to Cosby, getting advice, so we didn't scripts. being advised to throw everything out, and uh, it was just a big a mess as you, as you can have. It was just a, for my entire career. Um, that's when I look back on it, and it was just it was just an explosion. It was just the worst. It was just the worst experience you could possibly have. And. The show didn't do well, but I'm sure it was a much better time. The boys are back with Helen and Suzanne Plachette. You know, I saw somebody mentioned me on Facebook and, and re- posted it to me who worked on the show. Helen was talking recently, being interviewed, talking about the show that, uh, you know, that we just didn't. You're saying, you know, to be fair, that maybe it was him, but he was really laying out the idea that we were going for the jokes, which is not the case. Matthew Carlson, I've worked with a bunch of times, has hired me a bunch of times. Um, he worked with Ron Malcolm. He's a great writer. And he wrote a great script based on his own family experience, where his brothers, one was married and one was kind of a very loose cannon guy. 
they moved back in, and one brother had a wife, two, two, two or three kids. They moved back in with the parents, and so he used that as a premise. And he wrote a great script, and Helen and his example Shet did a fine job. And the test, it was, we were told the highest testing pilot in CBS history, and it makes sense. Matthew's a great writer. Uh, you did some wonderful episodes of, of the Wonder Years, um, mm. really a special, you know, unique voice and, and, and great writer. And he wrote the script, Jim Burroughs directed it, and it was the highest testing pilot in CBS history. And they put her on a protected spot on Monday nights. Um, and uh, it tested so high, CBS decides, and I think it would have run for five years. CBS decides they're going to open Wednesday nights with it. it we're mm. never, they'd never had comedy, in, or at least in many years. And, uh, you know, when they when they canceled it after 18 episodes, they never again got ratings that high. They had some crazy wish number, um, uh, you know, that they were aiming for. Mm. It did fine on Wednesday nights, but it had to open the night as an unknown comic. Right. And uh, they, they ended up canceling it. I never got close to it. Now, a lot of the reason is the declining numbers of, of network TV. But within a couple years after that, they didn't get anything close to what we got. It was just pure mismanagement of a network. Um, it would uh, have went on before Murphy Brown, correct? If it was on Monday. Um, Ian, you're incredible. Yes, I forgot it was Murphy Brown. Yes, yes, yes. And it had a big audience right out of the shoot. That it was well done, and I think it would have lasted for you know five years. It's what's not dating uh, in high school. That's what led to it. Don't say it again. I said it's it's not dating in high school. That's what led to this. Not dating in high school led to what? Me knowing the oh, Monday night lineup of CBS. Oh my god, that's hilarious. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm sorry, but. But in this moment, thank you. No, I'm okay. a terrible socialist. Um, and you know what? And this led to another difficult moment in my career here. I'll share this with you. So two years later, so, so CBS kills the show, mm-hmm. which we liked a lot. A family show at 8 o'clock. Two years later, now in the interim, Neil and I did created a show called The Faculty with Meredith Baxter that ran for 13 episodes. Again, a heartbreaker, because the night of the filming, it just played great. But because ABC Productions was shutting down, we had no advocate. Instead of being on the fall schedule, we got put on in mid-season. So it finally aired almost a year after the pilot was shot. At the time, it was red hot after we turned it in. The network loved it. And... Uh, by the time it aired, it did middling to okay, and then they didn't pick it up. Right. Um, so we go, we get an offer the next year from two shows, maybe hitting badly, and everybody loves Raymond. Wow. Okay. And we had breakfast with uh, Phil Rosenthal, Neil and I did, and he really wanted us to work on the show and told us all about the show and everything. But impossible to remember that Ray Romano wasn't known. He's known from if you watch Letterman, but really wasn't known for the most part. It was Patricia Heaton particularly, and it's a really nice family comedy. And I don't say Ray was out of his actor over time, and uh, but a really nice family comedy right. that they buried on Friday night, which was a very absolute comedy burial ground at that time on CBS. 
Andy Henny Batty, written by Matthew Carlson, again directed by Jim Burroughs. Um, we knew the actors, we could were tough, but it was NBC's Carsey Warner, who had amazing clubs. Uh, so, you know, their show is not going to get canceled in the first year. And it didn't. And it didn't. Warren Littlefield believed in it, his favorite comedy. And I think we waited two days, maybe three days, to keep getting called. You guys have to decide. And that's how much I think so one of us is that we let it drift. Mm. And we just kept staring at each other, going, all right, we, we like, we really like Raymond. But they buried it. We were just two years off the boys about the screen, same network. Mm. A family comedy we bury on a night nobody watches. And, and who maybe hitting badly had the, you know, well, not that this should matter, but it does in these moments. You know, especially pilot season and the new schedule announcements. Uh, the most heat of any pilot. Mm. Warren Littlefield loves it. Carsey Warner. We love working with Matthew. Yeah, we heard, you know, we didn't love Rob Schneider. We could tell he's not an actor. And uh, it's like a couple, a couple of actors and a sketch comic in a series. Right. So that was one down note for us. And we re- but we're just sitting there going, we really like Raymond, but we get buried it on Friday night. And it's like one of those moments you're trying to learn from all this mystery. Right. So we chose maybe hitting down there, which ended up being a nightmare, which I quit after 14 episodes. By the way, that's a lot of money on the table. Mm. It was just so abusive. It was so abusive. The, uh, the actors, all the three actors. Oh, Justine was not nice? Uh, yeah, okay, yeah. that's fine. All right. Uh, they, when Rob was going to ask this, uh, this is how crazy what a nuthouse it was. Everything was, was shit. Everything was shit from Rob's point of view. Mm. We start, we're going to go read the second episode of the, of the series after the pilot. You then do pre production. And then you start production with this reading of the, what will be the second episode. And Rob comes up to me and me and says, uh, you know, did you read the shit? And that's just the way it was from the beginning. And it ended up barely changed, being great. Matthew wrote it, Jim Burroughs directing. Right. Um, and it was just an abusive, abusive situation. And, um, and then there was a time where Justine was upset because she, Matthew wrote a script where uh, we go back to uh, Rhino Perth family is a farm family in the Midwest, but planted these blue-collar people in Indianapolis, and Justine plays a nurse, and she decided her parents were Brian Dennehy and Marsha Mason live in a penthouse in New York. We didn't know that. We wouldn't have agreed with it, but um, she didn't care to share that, and uh, when the script is read, but she's going back to her family's farm somewhere in Indiana, she was just furious, and so then I know that wanted to fight, wanted to get fired because he had a, felt he had a big movie career. And um, so he acted an entire episode like the Night of the Living Dead. And this is when Rob's on his best behavior because he had an option that was going to be picked up. Mm. And, you know. and it was so awful. I mean, for the first moment, it was just her walking out going, my mom called. She wants us to go to the farm for Christmas. Mm. And Ron says, well, I don't know, sweetie, about that. And they did an entire, you can imagine that, with camera crew there, with everybody there. They did three and a half hours that way. Wow. And, uh, and the Carson one didn't say anything, but then, uh, and it was on, you, you couldn't put it on the air. So they had to go back on a Saturday night before Christmas, 
and reshoot the whole damn thing. Mm. Um, it's a longer story, but anyway, I quit after 14 episodes. Mm. You know, and I quit. Somebody didn't come back for the, of the main three, right, for the second season? Well, I came back. Rob was given control, and it ended up being just, uh, you know, Ryan Elgar, I think, I forget the whole... I don't remember. History, and then there was a new actor that played Ron's part, and they got in a fist fight at Mexicali, this restaurant, mm. brought a show to go after, got a beer. That's all I heard. I remember being excited about... I remember being excited about the show. What's heartbreaking is I think we did some great episodes. I think we did some really good episodes. And then and then more and more and more uh, it just became a mess. Right. You did a show called Union Square? Because of which is also a mess because of men behaving badly because an NBC executive current executive at the time was blackballing. Our agent found out because we were going to be hired on three or four other NBC comedies. Right. And at the 12th hour, we kept getting turned down. And Lanny finally smoked out another person at NBC who said yes, this mm. current person at NBC was because we quit night not many and badly. Mm. Whatever reason in their head was killing jobs for us. Right. And so finally, I called Burroughs at the 12th hour. I called Burroughs and just said, hey, Neil and I uh, haven't been hired. We, we'd love to get a meeting on Union Square. And, and so, thanks to Jim Burroughs, we got hired. Uh, but it was a mess. They didn't know what the show was. They built it around this woman, Latina actress, who then they decided in testing didn't. Everything else worked but hers. We took the center of the show out and tried to keep the show gotcha. going. It'd take Judd Hirsch out of taxi. Yeah, whatever they. Well, not, it would have been. No, nothing, right. Anyway. Maybe it's uh, one of my favorite shows, so not an apt, completely apt comparison. No, I know, but he's um, the center. Let's say they took uh, Candace Bergen out of Murphy Brown. Okay. Um, and uh, when everybody says, anybody says to me, comedy writing isn't brain surgery, as far as brain surgery, I say, I'm sorry. <laughs> I beg to differ if it's a show that doesn't work. Because from my experience on Union Square, a brain remains a brain from day to day. Um, if you're working on a show that doesn't know what it is, you're writing a pilot after every run through, after every mm. every few days. They decide, oh, this relationship is the center of the show. Oh, this this, this actor is the center of the show. And you not only have to write that up, rewrite everything from that perspective, but then all the shows you're developing going ahead have to be all those ideas, all those you know stories that are broken have to be redone. It was like writing in sand. You're going home and trying, coming back the next day, you know. And and you look at the other NBC shows that were out there, Friends, uh, Frasier, and then I think uh, just uh, just shoot me, which I think is very underrated, and yeah, uh, yeah. news radio. Oh, it, was, it was ridiculous, but it was in the era before comedy, multi-camera comedy needed to die for a while because they would do something like this. Because Fred Barron and Marco Panette and Jim Burroughs had such, they had uh, Carolyn and the City on the air and such great reputation in the business, you know, they were given this pilot commitment and NBC was willing to put the show on the air anyway, even though the woman at the center of it didn't test well and they took right. her out. So you don't really have a show there. Right. But they went ahead and put it on anyway. And Neil and I had had four jobs. Uh, 
shot out from under us. Uh, and so we ended up wanting a gig to took that job. Now, it did lead to a nice relationship with Marco Panette, and uh, he hired us on Carolina in the City for the rest of that season and for the next year. And that was the final season, correct? Yeah, yeah. Le- Leah Thompson, nice person, right? Very nice. Okay, Very good, nice. all right. I like Leah. I, yeah. I mean, I like her from her movies, but, you know, always seemed to be, to be very nice. Oh, could not have been nicer. Really wonderful women, really. Especially you get in the world of, I wouldn't even, I would say in comparison, but in the world of people who are stars of shows and so forth, I mean, I mean she was just terrific. And then you did a critically um, lauded show called God, the Devil, and Bob, which just was very controversial. For no reason, for no reason, I loved it. I mean, I understand that you're dealing with. I mean, well, I'll say this: that when again with Matthew, who I love, who's great, and I do remember when I first heard he got the show picked up, I thought, "Can we do this?" <laughs> but once you really looked at the material we were writing, and I'll say from the pilot, uh, it's a wonderful story. So, originally Robert Downey Jr. was a devil, it became Alan Cumming. Uh, and James Garner is God, fantastic. We're mm. thrilled to meet and work with him. And French Stewart was Bob. And so the God, the devil, devil was pushing God to do as he's promised many times and destroy the earth because it's so evil. And God wants one more try. And he lets devil, devil choose. And it's, they go into a bar and Bob's stealing a bar, uh, a beer, you know, from as the bartender looks away from the tap. And um, he goes, okay, that guy. And so God appears to Bob, and he, Bob has to save the world. And so Bob is doing all these crazy things to try to save the world in the pilot. And it turns out his daughter's kind of strung throughout, being very difficult, and it, he ends up having a conversation with her. And she's just having her period, and she's confused, and, and Bob is completely can't, being such kind of a look, doesn't know what to say, but he's comforting with his daughter. Mm. And then but he's at sea with what to say to her. Uh, and they end up having kind of, you know, a sweet moment together. And so uh, Bob comes home, he opens the fridge, and then God steps out, hands him a beer, which is very controversial, a light beer. And they have a beer together. And and God being you know, kind of a noble, as you know, mm-hmm. as we might know him to be, uh, says, hey, congratu- congratulations, Bob. And Bob says, way to go. And Bob says, what? You know, you, you mean, and it gets to this moment of, like, Bob did a good job of, in his path to save the world. And he goes, so what, we're just supposed to try with our families? And then God mentions how good the beer is, and he doesn't answer him directly. Mm-hmm. But you get the sense. Right. Yeah, that's the message. Save the world by being good to your family. Oh, my God, it was just... A great show, the, the, the depth to it and the layers, and it was funny. And, uh, and there's another one where Bob's father's a bastard, and he ends up finding out that Bob's father ended up in heaven. And so then, for Bob, it's just like he won't even talk to God. Nothing means anything, and he goes and was, ends up in a car chase and whatnot. Matthew wrote this one too. They're at a bar. God shows up, and he basically says, "Yeah, your dad." was a bastard. Did you ever meet your granddad? Now there was a bastard. I don't know if bastard was the word we used. Right. And then Matthew wrote this great thing about, you know, the way I see it is a long line of fathers and sons 
each one punching the next one. <laughs> and your job in life is to lessen that punch uh, to your kid. That's, and that's what your yeah. dad did. And so that, and so all of these right wing groups, of course, they get it. They see a chance to raise money. Mm -hmm. And they all dove in without ever seeing it. And then the saddest, most pathetic one to me was a television station owned by the University of Notre Dame. And I know they're conservative Catholics, but when they pulled the plug, it was just like, because I'm raised Catholic, and it's at Notre Dame, and the values of the show were, were wonderful, and the message was rich. Um, you know, it, it just was heartbreaking. By the end, it was just uh, all the advertising was pulled out by a handful of people. And I know uh, Harvey Myman, I really love Harvey. He was a non-writing exec producer who worked with Carsey Warner on the show. He shared with us, he came in shaking his head once. It's a very dark email of, of we're going to ruin you. You have no idea how powerful we are. Mm. So talk about a devil force in the world. It's crazy because when The Simpsons started, they, they thought it was one of the most blasphemous shows in the, in the in the history of television. And now they say it's the most religious show on television. Because it's the only show wow. with, where the where it's the only show where the family goes to church every Sunday. Well, we are, God and Bob have. I'll just say this: had wonderful message, wonderful values, um, and was treated abominably. And uh, I'm very proud of the work we did on it. Nobody knows about it, but uh, I'm very, very proud of the work we did. If it was on and Netflix, with, if it was on Netflix, I mean, now what? forget it. No, I'm saying if it was on Netflix now, it would be a big hit. I I would hope so because I I, I love the show and uh, I got to work with Alan Cumming and James Garner and mm. uh, French Stewart and Nancy Cartwright mm. was on it. Lori Metcalf was Bob's wife. I mean, yeah, great people, great show. You did do a uh, family sitcom right after that, Malcolm in the Middle. Oh yeah yeah. Well, I knew Linwood from uh, Night Court, and Linwood worked with us on uh, The Boys Are Back. And then I'd, I'd read every, he'd given me every pilot I'd ever written after that to add jokes to. Mm. Except Malcolm. I didn't add any jokes to the Malcolm pilot. That was just, he figured out a, a world and a story that was like uh, from his life and his, his experience. And he really. That was his voice, I and mean, he really found his voice with that. He handed me the script, he gave it to Matthew, he gave it to Neil. And I remember he gave it to me and said, this will never see the light of day, tell me what you think of it. And I know what he meant. I mean, of course, we all want our, any, the things we write to have a, find an audience, but at the time, there were no single-camera shows out there. Mm. Uh, it was edgy as hell. Uh, and everybody told them with that, uh, you know, Make, maybe make make the kids high school kids maybe but uh, Malcolm was twelve and nobody was interested and, and uh, we all did Linda particularly of course had loved it when it was a hit hearing all these people go on NPR and different you know morning shows whatever and expound on why it was a hit and there was the people who turned it down mm. um, and it briefly was a multi camera show on UPN. And usually show, networks don't release shows for this very reason, the embarrassment factor. Right. But Gail Berman knew the person at UPN, and she loved. She found the script, and she said, "Hey, if I if I sell this somewhere, will you release it?" And she got the friend of hers to say yes at UPN. So 
a while, Lynn was writing a multi-camera version, which would have ruined it mm. at UPM. And then uh, every bit of magic possible, including that happened, including Brian Cranston, who... I was going to ask you about no Brian Cranston, yeah. No voice. He had no voice for the dad. His dad was an engineer who would work in the garage and projects, and then he had a stroke when Lynn was very young. And uh, he, didn't, he could not find the voice of the dad, and he had no lines in the first script that I read. And then he added... I think the only line in it, and it's interesting because there's going to be a Zoom reading of the pilot. My wife, Diana, brought this up. Um, the Zoom reading of the pilot, then we just send us an email. The original cast and the writers are going to talk about it and so forth coming up. And uh, and uh, Diana brought up, uh, so Brian has had this amazing career since, and he has one line right. in the pilot. Um, and anyway... Uh, so then I kept writing sides and he couldn't find a voice. And um, I would have to ask Lord again, but my memory is, and we saw all of this because we were working on God the Devil and Bob together. Lynn would leave to go to casting, he'd come back and work on the show, he'd excuse himself to go to casting. And um, he came back and, and oh, so the story I heard was that like the day before they began shooting, or the table read, uh, Brian came in, and, and Brian's brilliant enough where he saw, like, this is a really good script. They're going to need a lot from this father character if it goes forward, even though there's only one line in the script. Mm-hmm. I think he just saw that. And um, he, he just, my hearing it from Linwood, he just improvised stuff, sitting in a chair opposite Linwood, and making Linwood, it was not an easy laugh, by the way. Making Linwood laugh, and that's basically what led to him playing the part. And so, like a day or two before the table read, and there's Brian at the table read, and the show would have never gone, didn't done what it became, what it came to do without Brian in that role. Mm. And he, like Lara Cat, again, I've been fortunate enough along the way to work with some amazing people, and, uh, you know. I did, didn't even mention and Harry Brian, Anderson. And Harry, oh, Harry, I really like Harry, and it's so sad that he passed away. Mm. Very, very. Uh, Funny, talented. He wasn't the actor the Lara Cat was. I mean, no. he was a stand-up. He was a street magician and a stand-up. Right. He did very well, considering. I think before Cheers and everything, I don't know if you ever took an acting class. Mm. You know, you just suddenly is starring in network sitcoms. Mm. Um. And yet, uh, and but really, really grew as an actor. And uh, you know, if we, if we wrote stuff that didn't work, I would I would kind of. I, you know, you could do it. I would, I would be mad at myself at the time. Heard me say this, but if it didn't work, you know, we hadn't found Harry. We, you know, we hadn't written the right thing for Harry. If you found the stuff in his wheelhouse, he was fantastic, funny, and uh, he could really, you know, have warmth to him. You know, and, and mm. in scenes, and I think the show could have succeeded the way it did without him at the center of it. Well, yeah, Tom Reader yeah. said his happiest time was when he was writing Dave's World. Oh, I never knew that. I never, okay. Okay, I forgot Tom was on that. Again, Mark opened up. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I, I like Harry. When Reinhold passed away, sadly, uh, that's the last time I saw Harry. And Harry was great. Mm. He was just warm and, and uh, terrific, and we had a ton of laughs. Um, yeah. Um, and then, so to segue back to Brian, I mean, uh, same thing. But Brian, what an incredible talent. Mm. I'll share this story. After, after Malcolm ended, Dan and I went to go see Brian after the first, before the first season aired of Breaking Bad. 
there was an evening of Breaking Bad at the Pacific Design Center here in town. And uh, I don't know what somebody's going to interview Vince Gilligan and Brian and the rest of the cast in a whole evening of show and episode. And he asked Vince Gilligan if uh, the interviewer said, did you know Brian could do drama this way after all the years in Malcolm? And he said, well, that's not the way I looked at it. He'd written an X-Files where there, uh, there was a Hannibal Lecter guy that the two leads had to drive across country. Mm. And he started getting in their heads, Hannibal Lecter style. And uh, they kept wanting to try to stunt cast. You know, like, oh, I hear Jack Nicholson. The networks always do this, right? It's rating sweeps time. We hear Jack Nicholson watches the show. Let's go out to him. And so you burn up all this time and you get everybody turning you down. And so they, they, they cast Brian in it, and he was spectacular. So Vince Gilligan's point of view was, he was amazed Brian could do comedy. <laughs> um, and boy, could he ever. I mean, and, and just the hardest working man in show business, I'll say that much. Uh, always prepared, always with game. Never, in, I worked six and a half years, whatever it was, never a moment of kind of BS or rank or anything like that. It was all it was just great. And just by our video village, we'd always get into just great conversations. And I seen him on his Christmas parties and uh, we went back to see him in uh, network and I emailed him in advance and uh, we went backstage and talked to him and, and you know, he just he's just always himself. He's just uh, amazing that way. Just uh, a really great human being and profoundly himself because there's never a, a bit of attitude, and you know, anyway. Oh, that's great. And you yeah. did a show called Carpoolers, right? With Bruce McCullough, right? Right. right. Now, I, I not I knew the show, I, I knew when it came out, I didn't, I never watched it. Um, but I know Bruce McCullough from The Kids in the Hall. Did it have that sensibility? No. You know, I, I don't know. He, 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 it, it just didn't work, really. It didn't, whatever it was, you know, I think we wrote some scripts that were funny. Mm-hmm. But it just didn't, whatever magic. I mean, it's really hard. I witnessed yeah. it really close up with Malcolm. You know, if Brian didn't show up, Jane, Jane Kaczmarek almost wasn't cast. They wanted other actors, and Fox wanted a name. Mm-hmm. And from what I, what I understand, is that I heard later from other various sources, the head casting woman, Mary Buck, uh, Fox was the hero. She thought Jane could do it and be great at it. And she kept pulling Jane into the mix. And then Doug Herzog at the end, who was running, was really the angel who put it on the air. Because it had all the reasons that you might uh, kill a pilot. But he got it right away. He read the script. His only note was to him, let's shoot this. Mm. Which is amazing. Somebody to be that confident. Right. You know, just to not need to nervously change things for the sake of change. That never happens. And in the casting, uh, I know there are various forces pushing well, big names that weren't as good as Jane. And it's confusing, too, because you get to, you only get a brief moments to see these people do it before you might cast them in a show that will run for whatever amount was, 140-something episodes. And then would saw him read it for her or read it for him. And then you take three choices for the roles on the network. And he saw two other actresses in Jane read it for the network. And he said she was a little flat. And he was, she was great with him, a little flat in front of the network. That's mm-hmm. it. you got to make your choice. 
and Doug and Lily wasn't sure. And although he, he thought Jane could do it, but he'd just seen her be not quite what she was in the office. And apparently Doug heard Doug say, I, I, I love Jane. Let's, mm. let's go with Jane. And again, it wouldn't have run for as long as it did without Jane. You know, again, really great, great person and, and uh, talent. And, uh, you know, at the rap, final rap party, both of them talked about it, but they never saw this coming. They were both mm. during when actors, I was once editing with VHS tapes, the TV pop on, whatever channel it was on, I was doing it in my office. I was editing, working on editing an episode, and a Remington Steel popped up in the afternoon, and Jane was in it, and I watched mm. a little bit of it. And I forgot, you know, the and, you know, Brian had been on Seinfeld. He said we were journeyman actors, and we never, ever, ever saw this coming. And, of course, then Brian then gets breaking bad. Right. But he'd, he'd worked for 20 years, you know, prior to their start. What was Notes from the Underbelly about? Uh, that was a show about a woman who, uh, let's see, found herself, uh, her friend, best friend, getting pregnant. And she had just been married, and all of her, uh, not certain if she's ready to have a baby, and I think at the end of the, I forget now, the end of the first season, she, maybe she thought she was pregnant? I can't remember. Okay. It's okay. <laughs> I've blocked it out. I, I, I would say I enjoy the people I worked with on the show, and I enjoy the show, but anyway. All right, and then you did a show called The X's on TV Land, right? Uh, with Mark Reisman, who I love, and is now I'm working on a Disney show that Mark created called City to the Max, which I like and love. Mm-hmm. And um, and the X is a place in my heart that people, nobody saw it. Nobody watched TV Land. Nobody knew it was there. Mm-hmm. I really think we did great episodes and had a great cast. Donald Faison and Wayne Knight and Chris, Kristen Johnson. And uh, the other two actors weren't uh, really well-known, David Allen Bation and... Uh, Kelly Stables, who ended up being terrific. And uh, the writing staff, Howard Gewirtz had been on Taxi for years. And, oh, and oh, Ian wow. Gervitz on Wings and, uh, you know, Becker and many, many other shows. Yeah. And and Mark had run, you know, run Wings and run Frasier. And yeah, I thought we had a terrific, terrific writer's room. We had a great cast. And we had a bad network. Nobody knew that it was on, and nobody watched it. Then they would pick it up for like ten. There was one couple of times it was very frustrating. We started to build an audience. Um, it was on after Hot in Cleveland, so they did that right. Right. And then uh, you start. Oh, look, the ratings are growing, growing, growing. We have no more episodes. Right. And then they'd wait six months and pick it up for another twelve. But I, I, I loved working on the show. Yeah, as you've probably heard now, there've been some. You, you can be either a performer or the network doesn't get it or any number of reasons that a show can be a nightmare to drive into work, mm. you know, every day to work on. But uh, the X's was a joy and a pleasure to work on. And, and, and Mark really is terrific at running a show. And, and uh, it was just a, uh, a great place to be, just incredibly frustrating the way TV land seemed to, I don't know what their model was. I don't know what their, it was crazy. Mm. Like, believe it or, or cancel it, but don't pick it up for like, okay, eight and a half. Let's let's, go, yeah. let's do eight and a half, and then wait six months. Um, and but if anybody wants to check it out out there, I really liked it. I thought we did some great episodes. 
And you first worked with Mark. How does it pronounce Mark? Mark Reese, Mark Reisman. What do you What do you say? I first worked with Mark when I was in my days in the wilderness from the Tonight Show. They they kind of, they were doing an early HBO special, and uh, uh, Race. <laughs> how crazy is this? Ray had let me go, but he recommended me to them. Uh, mm. So I worked with uh, Mark on on an HBO special. Um, was that that one about nineteen eight this year, nineteen eighty one, and they. Did it in January? Yeah, it's unbelievable, Ian. I'm you're, you're incredible. Like, God forbid I lie about anything. You made <laughs> on me about it. Um, yeah, yeah, and uh, I had great fun working on that. Also, Jerry Mulligan. Who, oh wow! Way, it's, it's crazy. You know Jerry Mulligan. You know everybody. Uh, he ended up working on the Letterman Show forever. And this is a crazy thing about doing this for a living, writing for a living. Um, he, he Jerry, terrific. Brilliant guy, brilliant guy outside of comedy, and then also a good comedy writer. Uh, had worked with Mel Marco and he started with Mel Marco mm. days, and had written, I think, for Dave's stand up and worked for the morning show. And um, he gets a call, well, it's in 1981, or he gets a call, we're working on the show, you know, that mm. HBO show, right? And he gets a call that the late night has been picked up, and he gets a job offer from Dave. And he and he worked until he retired, you know, on the late show with Dave. Yeah. So I, I, shows are dying on me, you know, and I'm working on this show, and it might be six months, it might be six years. But Jerry just worked on uh, on that show and and moved to New York and raised a family and had stability. Mm. Okay. The thing I know about Mark Reisman is he was also on Thick of the Thick of Night. Was he there when you right. were there? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he was hired for for Saturday Night Live. Yeah. On the sixth season, the really the Gene Demanian season, and his yeah. third episode there was the one where Charles Rocket. He was hired mid season, and he was hired. And the third episode was the one where Charles Rocket said the f word, and then they uh, fired everybody in the cast and writers. So I don't even like. Yeah, he didn't really talk about it much. I think it was a good experience. I think it was a, a lost year for the show itself. And yeah. yeah, he was only there for a week. So. Yeah, I didn't know his next word, but he didn't mention it much. He just said he worked there. You know? mm. And Jennifer Falls. Matthew Carlson again. Mm. Right? In, a, in a downtime, I, I had a hiatus with the X's, and uh, Matthew created it. Uh, he didn't see eye to eye with the execs TV land with what it should be, so it was short lived. But I, I worked in pre production and I really enjoyed it while well, I was working with Matthew. Mm. We had a terrific, terrific writing staff, and so I really enjoyed the developing episodes. But then the extras came back, so right as they were going into production, which I understand was a nightmare because uh, when you're not seeing eye to eye with the network, mm. it, it just is hell. It's just hell. So that's what that ended up being. But I, the initial stories and scripts, of course, were very good. No, this. Uh, I'm sorry. They, they say that the, the three camera system, the old, the old way of shooting, they only shoot Disney Channel and Nickelodeon shows that way. It, yeah. I think uh, there, there's a couple of. I think there's a single camera now on Disney, but for the most part, yeah. And you did a show, Alexa and Katie. That was from Netflix? Right. And is that a single camera or is that? No, it's multi-cam. It's multi-cam, I, right? Yeah, I don't know why they decided to do that. 
decided to do a month count. I think it'd have been a good single camera show as well. But yeah, yeah, that was uh, I, I really love that. Uh, was, uh, Matthew worked on it. Matthew brought me in. He was hired to really help the woman who created it mm. develop it further, and then you know put down what the the episodes would be the first season, and then then they gave it the green light, and Matthew brought me in. Yeah, my daughter's name is Alexa, so. What? Oh, it's a really nice. It's a terrific show. Mm. I, you know, it was a little frustrating in that, uh, and I, I kind of like maybe hitting badly. We would get notes at the table without any sense of irony. Sometimes an NBC exec I know for sure once said, "You know, are we going to like them if they do this?" You know, on a show called Nemi Hitting Badly. Right. And so, with Alex and Katie, one of the girls was diagnosed with leukemia. And, uh, you know, they, they didn't let us go all in. They kept having us pull back from dealing with that. Right. How we, how we, you know, might have dealt with it. I understand later when testing came in, people loved that. And they'd already been in the second season and pushing them away from cancer and right. then went back to it. But anyway, I was gone by then. And then you joined Sydney to the Max, which is where you are now. Yeah, which I'm loving, which I'm really loving. Again, with Mark. And while I, while I was uh, working on <laughs> Lex and Katie, uh, he sent me the pilot, and I spent, I was sick, but I spent a day, uh, he asked me to punch it up. So uh, I had as many jokes as I could, and then when you did, we did the pilot, I helped him during that process. And then uh, it got picked up, and uh, it's been great, and I love working with Mark, and he does a great job, again, running a show. And we were beginning a third season when we got shut down. Mm. So we were waiting to hear when, when things might start up again. But we've written eight episodes uh, of these first drafts, and uh, we are awaiting when we will return to film the third season. But it's a great cast, uh, wonderful cast. And, uh, you know, I, I, I feel very lucky to be working on it. Um, and as Mark and I have talked about, um, uh, you know, we've, we've been pushed by Disney and, uh, you know, ourselves as much as any show we've worked on, as much as I did in Night Court or, or Malcolm or him on Wings of Frasier, you know, as far as pushing ourselves to try to elevate the story, elevate mm. the comedy. And the Disney execs have been fantastic and really uh insightful and uh, in, in helping us develop stories or even ideas for stories and Amanda Piazza has been really like I am maybe the best executive I've ever worked with but just this uh, sense of of what makes the stories work for the show and, and she's come up with some great story ideas and we've been hard pressed you know with, uh, against the clock and uh, very thoughtful notes um uh, Anyway, she's really become our full partner you know, beyond her official role as a network executive. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, and they've been very supportive. They, they love the show, and the cast is great. Highly recommend checking it out if you have a particularly a young daughter. But uh, yeah, I do. The board, it, and it takes how old is the daughter? Eight. Oh, that is the sweet spot for the show. Have her watch the show. Okay, please. Oh, have her watch the show. Okay. I, I think I'll leave it to her, but I think she would enjoy it. And then it, it takes place in two time time eras. 
Mm. So the dad in the present, in the 90s, he's Sydney's age in middle school, in the 90s, with Caroline Ray, who's fantastic, plays the mom and the grandmother, and Ian Reed Kessler, by the way, I got to give a shout out, plays dad, who and he, both both terrific. And, he, and uh, you know, Caroline has been doing it forever. Mm. I, I'd never known Ian, but boy, he can, he can do the, the comedy and the emotional moments. Uh, cast is great. You know, the kids have just grown tremendously. Um, and um, Ruthie, who plays uh, Sydney, so charming and interesting and uh, such depth for her age. Uh, so I think that's been great. It's been great working on that. That's good. Yeah. That's my life. All right. You all the way to the present. Good Lord. I feel like, what's his name? Who's that guy that had that sh- on the show? If I don't know it's on, on Bravo, where he, inside the actor's studio. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's what, yeah. because I, ne- I never obviously saw the show, but I, I heard that David Susskind had a show called Open End, where he would have a guest on, and he would just go as long as the guest would want to go. And if the guest was boring, they would stop it in a half an hour. And if the guest was interesting, they would go for two hours. And I said, if I ever got a talk show, which I'm not, you know, I'm not, not going to have a talk show, but if I did, that's what the talk show I would do. I wouldn't want to do, uh, you know, this, then this, then, then a, a musical guest spot. And then, you know, what every other talk yeah. show is, I would just have one guest on. And if they were interesting, I would keep them on. And then if, if they weren't interesting, I would just say, all right, good night, everybody. So you get to do that on a podcast. Well, I hope I've been interesting. Uh, yes, you've uh, been very interesting. You keep hitting these things that trigger like a flood of memories. I've tried to be that. That's what it, that's what that's what they get said. You they say you do a lot of research, and it's fun talking about old times. Well, you've, you've just uh, made me give them value to what I've done in so many ways. I mean, I, it's so great to hear that the story about you watching Night Court with your dad, or. You, you know, are you just you remembering these various moments? Uh, you know, it's it's God, it's great to hear that. I mean, he, he worked That's overnight. Why, you know, he he worked overnight. So, except except for two days a week, Thursdays and Mondays. So, his two favorite shows were New Heart, which was on Mondays, and Night Court, which was on Thursdays. So they became um, you know. So I watched those with him every Monday and Thursday. Yeah, yeah. So. Great, great. Well, I'm, I'm thank you for all your research. And, uh, you know, I've really enjoyed, I've really enjoyed being able to uh, kind of drift through so many of these memories, so many faces that come, you know, flashing back uh, moments in this room and that room and that room for me. So uh, I really enjoyed it. Okay. Well, thank you. And I will um, email Cy Rosen tomorrow and tell him the story. Oh, I forgot. Thank you. Please. Okay, no problem. Please. Okay. All right. Okay. Thank you, Ian. Thank you. Okay.